0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: There's been a lot of talk lately about a particular story in the news. The global advisory firm, PwC,
2: has moved to stem the damage from a massive confidentiality breach that's become a full-blown crisis. The AFP has launched a criminal investigation after it was revealed a former partner used confidential treasury tax information to benefit the firm's client base. Well, uh, good evening, Andy. If it wasn't so serious, I'd be referring to this as theatre.
1: But this is not the first time ethics has hit the headlines
2: we had the Banking Royal Commission, we've had royal commissions into bad behaviour at uh, Crown Resorts casinos in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth, and now we've got PwC, and it just seems that some of the lessons about ethical behaviour don't appear to have really sunk in.
1: Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and in this episode of This Working Life, why good people do bad things, even on a smaller scale, like fudging sales figures or not standing up for a colleague. And it's not just about the people at the centre of the ethical issue, it's also about those around it, the complicitors. We'll learn about ordinary complicity and how we can find ourselves being complicit, sometimes even without our awareness. But first, what's stopping us from raising ethical issues at work?
0: Look, I think there's a couple of important aspects of this.
1: That's Dr Dale Tweedy.
0: I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Accounting and Corporate Governance at Macquarie University. When individuals are measured, we've seen this trend towards focusing on more and more tightly in terms of particular data, particular metrics that individuals analyze or are forced to respond to, rather, and that those metrics are not always the ones that are conducive to um, to acting ethically. So in professional services firms, for example, this uh, focus on how many of your hours you're billing out to clients, how much money you're pulling into the firm. Clearly, when you pressure people in terms of those incentives, it detracts attention from other types of ethical considerations you should be having in terms of client service, commitment to the public good, and the like. But I think there's also a more subtle issue, which is that the more we measure performance in terms of metrics, the more managers of organisations step back from understanding what people are actually doing in their day-to-day life. So mm. this has sometimes been called a managing increasingly from a distance, that people are judged on this set of numbers and in getting that, you get more fine-grained insights into certain aspects of what people are doing, but you lose touch with people or you risk losing touch with what people are struggling with on a day-to-day basis. And you also risk losing or undermining that trust that people have in their managers and their and their colleagues, that the concerns that they have, that they will be taken seriously and, and treated respectfully. So I think that effect on the relationships at work when you Kind of break down or, or, or weaken relationships between managers and relationships that workers have with each other, undermine or risk undermining that, that culture of trust, which is really a important indicator in whether people feel comfortable are raising ethical issues or not.
1: It's like we haven't built in time for these different types of conversations in our workplaces.
0: Yeah, and I think it's even more than that. It's not that we haven't. It's not just that we haven't built in time, but we're actively eliminating mm. the, that, that time. <laughs> and and that's the the, the efficiency. Pressure and you know, in in a lot of professional services firms, that's that's monitored very intensively. So I certainly remember when I first my first job out of school was working at a big accounting firm, and I very vividly remember being given a six minute diary, which was and I thought it was a joke when I when I started then to keep track of what I was doing with every six minutes of my time, so I could allocate that. To a client, and I very quickly realised that that wasn't a joke. That the expectation was that that I would be keeping track of that time very minutely, and and also that part of the judgement around performance was what proportion of my time mm. I, w- I was billing to clients. Now, if we think about ethics as as, as requiring that we step back a little bit from our immediate job and we reflect on the the bigger picture, you know, how we're serving the community, the public interest, uh, our colleagues and the like, then I think you're right that you need to create space for time, but you also need to stop um, seeking out and eliminating that time and space for reflection.
1: And Dale says that our ethics at work can be influenced by the quality of our working life.
0: So I think it's useful to distinguish between a couple of aspects of work. So on one hand, there's what we might call the formal conditions. So your pay and your rights and entitlements. And those things are quite important that you have to have that sense of security or it certainly makes it easier to raise ethics issues. But there's also things that speak to more the the climate, the day-to-day experience that you face when you go to work. Do you feel supported by your colleagues? Do you feel that you have a voice in the organization? Are you constantly under stress and under pressure? And those things speak to what it's like to go to work, whether that's a good experience or not. But they're important in the context of ethics because each of those things also impacts your ability to, to speak out about ethical issues that you're, that you're facing. So just to give one example, if you look at the case of being under stress, you know what some of the psychology research tells us is that when people are under stress, they tend to get tunnel vision mm. and they tend to focus you know, more on immediate problems, immediate incentives, uh, you know, the the project deadline, the performance metric they're they're trying to meet, those kind of things. Whereas acting ethically, I think, requires the ability to step back and, and reflect uh, a bit more calmly and away from those immediate demands. So as we put more pressure at people in the workplace, as we get tighter deadlines and higher expectations, that also impacts the, the space people have to reflect in the way that they need to reflect if they're going to act ethically. That's
1: fascinating because most of the time we are working in conditions that could be seen as being quite stressful.
0: Yeah, very much so. And and there's certainly evidence from a range of surveys that, that show that those demands are increasing, that you know, more people feel that they're facing shorter deadlines, uh, more tasks that, that need to be faced. And I think it's you know, they're important just from a health perspective because we know that you know, those stresses have uh, significant influences on people's quality of life. But I think sometimes the the consequences of that for maintaining you know, professional ethic standards are perhaps not, not recognised as much as they uh, ought to be.
2: Most people have probably never heard of the term moral disengagement. However, they've probably suffered its impact, but you know, didn't know that's what it was. That's Sue Barrett. And I'm a sales and business growth strategist focused on human-centred business performance. So moral disengagement is a term from social psychology, and it describes the process of convincing the self that the ethical standards don't apply to oneself in a particular context. So in layman's terms, it basically means, and anything goes culture, as long as it makes me money and gives me power and influence and to hell with the consequences for anyone else. People often look at the short term and think, oh, I'll just cut corners here. But actually, the long term impact of cutting corners and doing unethical things is really dangerous for people and business whilst you can't say all humans, but most humans are born for fairness. Uh, We don't like it when things aren't fair. And so, of course, what happens is if something unjust happens or something inappropriate happens, um, you know, we would like to be able to call it out. But the challenge is if your environment that you operate in isn't safe and it's unclear about what actually happens there, most people won't speak up because the risk to their safety, including job security, you know, money and those sorts of things, are too big a risk to take. So what ends up happening is that you have people, when they see things, bad things happen, they then might go, that's bad, I don't like it, but what if I speak up and something happens to me? If we don't want to have morally disengaged organisations and cultures, what we need to be able to do is put in place human-centred business models that actually stamp out corruption and unethical behaviour.
1: So what does human-centred business look and feel
2: like? Well, it feels inclusive and collaborative. And you also feel that what you have to say and do is actually taken seriously. So senior leaders, when they set up these environments, are actually not looking to dominate people and have that kind of do-as-I-say culture. They're actually looking to be more servant leadership-like and to create the environment that people can actually step into and show their ingenuity and their creativity. But they also have to have very clear strategy about what we're trying to do and they also have to have very clear standards of behaviours and conduct Uh, including ethical standards and behaviours. The challenge that we have, of course, is that people need to see how they can still make money. That old sort of profit maximisation model, it's outdated. We need to update the system and that's where human-centred systems run well, led well and creating the conditions for people to step in in much more humane and ethically responsible ways actually is the antidote to moral uh, disengagement and corruption.
1: Business School professor Max Bazerman recently released a book called Complicit, How We Enable the Unethical and How to Stop. In it, he shares a story about how he was complicit in wrongdoing because of mislaid trust.
3: So in 2012, I was the fifth author of a paper that allegedly claimed a fascinating result. It claimed that if you sign at the top of a form promising to tell the truth, you can induce greater honesty then if you sign at the bottom of the form, after you fill out the form, and the idea was an intriguing idea, that is, by signing before you fill out the form, it reminds you to tell the truth. The only problem was it didn't replicate. And as I was writing Complicit, I was about 85% done with it, when a group called Data Collada, who have an amazing blog that kind of oversees social science and the wrongdoing that sometimes occurs— basically notifies all five authors that they're um, two weeks from publishing pretty clear evidence that our, our data was fraudulent in the paper. And I'm certainly not admitting to any fraud on, on your podcast. In fact, I, I didn't engage in fraud. But I am complicit because, you know, I basically trusted others and I didn't spend enough time looking at the data myself in order to keep this event from occurring. So what I'm guilty of is putting trust in others, but sometimes we want to trust but verify. And I think I did too little of it.
1: I love the mantra, trust but verify. That's a very helpful way of looking at this quite difficult area.
3: So it's, it's interesting. So we, um, most of us in the United States um, trace that phrase back to Ronald Reagan, but I think it's an interesting phrase particularly in this context. And then finally, I think that we sometimes trust our systems more than we should. We, we, we place inappropriate trust in our systems. For example, um, one that's relevant in the Australian story with PwC in your press um, lately is the whole issue of auditor independence, So for the last 20 years, I've been arguing that auditors should only audit, they shouldn't be allowed to sell consulting services, they should be on fixed, non-renewable contracts so that they don't have any desire to please the clients, and we shouldn't allow auditors to move from the audit firm to a client that they've been auditing. And the whole idea here is to create auditors who actually want to find anything wrong with the client rather than to please the client, which is the system we currently have. So both in my country and in yours, Lisa, we allow auditors to sell consulting services. In the PwC story, as I read in the newspaper, PwC was not only selling consulting services to people who might be regulated by the government, but they were consulting for the government on their regulation and at least allegedly selling the inside information that they had from working with the government to their potential uh, to, to their corporate clients um, in ways that sure appear to have conflicts of interest. So we go f- not just from, you know, auditors should only audit, they shouldn't be selling consulting services. They also should not be working two sides of the fence in terms of working for the regulator and the parties that are being reg- regulated from the reg- regulator. The, the, the conflict of interest is just quite obvious. So we, we could fix these systems, but we accept the systems as they are. Our politicians are too lax on this topic, and this is not a political statement against one party in my country or versus the other. Um, this is uh, a bi, uh, sort of bipartisan neglect. And um, citizens, even the informed citizens who would be listening to your show, I think are too easygoing on these issues, and we just accept accepted as this is the way the world is. Well, this isn't the way we would create the auditing institution if we were going to create it from scratch.
1: Often when we think about ethics in business and work, we focus on the wrongdoer, the bad apple. But Max points out that it's also those surrounding them that are at fault, those who are complicit.
3: Because the wrongdoer couldn't get away with their wrongdoing if there weren't so many of us who were around the core person who allowed them to get away with their wrongdoing, or in some cases, evil.
1: You define complicity as being involved with others in an illegal or unethical activity or wrongdoing. This includes being silent. How did you come to this definition, Max?
3: Yeah, so I I was kind of paying attention to all of the sort of amazing scandals that we saw in, in contemporary society, from the opioid scandal, from Purdue Pharmaceutical, um, to what was going on with Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, and I became fascinated about how would we stop these um, kinds of incidences in the future. And quite honestly, I don't think I know how to create, how to stop truly bad people from engaging in truly bad behavior. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that all of these wrongdoers need complicitors in order to get away with the harm that they're creating. And if we could, instead of trying to prevent the very unusual core wrongdoer, if we could train the next generation to not be complicit, that we could go a long way toward eliminating these kinds of scandals in the future.
1: Max, there are many layers to our complicity, but let's start with explicit or intentional complicity. What is this?
3: When we think about wrongdoers in general, we think of people who are acting with intent to engage in inappropriate behavior. There are explicit complicitors. So there are people who are true partners. And, there, you know, if we think about the opioid scandal, there were doctors and pharmacists who clearly were going along with Purdue Pharmaceutical in order to make more money. There are collaborators. So in the United States political story, we saw Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham go along with many of Donald Trump's plans, not because they agreed with the destruction of democracy, but they were willing to trade with Trump in order to get what they wanted in, in terms of a variety of policies and positions on the Supreme Court that they cared more about. So those are some of the explicit ways in which people are complicit by either being true partners or collaborators because they're basically traitors.
1: And Max, you spend more time in the book exploring ordinary complicity. Why is that?
3: Because this is... The kind of complicity I've certainly been guilty of, and my guess most of your listeners have been guilty of at one time or another. So I'll talk about five different categories. One is when we kind of benefit from privilege and we don't sort of recognize that there's wrong in society because we're on the upside. So you could think about this in terms of a privileged group in society versus an underprivileged group in society. Those with privilege don't often recognize their privilege because they're benefiting from it. So they treat that as a default or normal. So um, I was once giving a talk at Stanford University, and um, I'm a business school professor. And in the United States, business school professors get paid substantially better than psychology professors, whether they should or not is another matter, I'm simply describing the world. And my host, a, a very, very famous social psychologist by the name of Lee Ross, kind of was obsessed with the fact that business school professors were being paid more. And my talk that day was on social comparison processes. And as our conversation developed, one of the things that he said, which was so insightful, was he got annoyed with me at one point in the conversation and said, Max, what's bothering me is that you're not even thinking about the inequality between our salaries. And he was right. And I think that that's a common experience. Those who are on the upside of some inequality treated as normal, those who are on the downside, feel very bothered by it. So we often accept systems that privilege ourselves.
1: Another element of ordinary complicity is believing in a false prophet.
3: Some of your older listeners may remember Jim Jones and the People's Temple, where we got the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid. So um, Jim Jones was a cult leader who got his followers to drink the Kool-Aid and essentially commit suicide in the process. And I'm not an expert on cults, but I am intrigued by the fact that some corporate leaders take on profit-like status. And and I'm thinking, for example, of Elizabeth Holmes, who many people found persuasive and some have used the word charming. And, you know, she would basically say, I can't tell you the secret sauce. We're in a different world. Um, The old rules don't apply. And people listened to her to the point where they were investing in a completely unproven technology, Walgreens is bringing this ineffective technology into their stores and using it on patients. So these are some of the complicitors, not because they intended evil, but because they believed in this false prophet.
1: And another layer of complicity is silence when we don't take
3: action. We hold people accountable for things that they do do, more than for things that they don't do that they should have done. So acts of commission, of, of doing, we hold people responsible, and we tend to let them off the hook for errors of omission. And as a result, I think that we've learned that inaction is okay. And so often, in order to not be complicit, what we need to do is take action in situations where there is no one telling us to, but it would become quite clear to us if we were an outsider and asking what's the moral thing to do, it would be to take some action and and stop the inappropriate behaviour from occurring.
1: Okay, so how do we give people the space and the right conditions to make it easier for them to speak out? Macquarie University's Dr Dale Tweedy again.
0: Well, I think there's certainly cultural elements. and I've noticed this when I'm interviewing people from big organizations, there's really not a large organization today that doesn't have an ethics code of some kind. But when you talk to people about their work, it's people pick up very clearly whether that code is actually taken seriously or not. <laughs> you know, what's, what's the real uh, criteria that we're judging people's performance on on here? So I think that it's not enough just to have an ethics code. Uh, you need to align that ethical code with the actual expectations. And look, I think in addition to that, there's a range of formal conditions. So it's not only a matter for firms, it's also a matter to have a framework in place where people have security and rights, mm. that where they they raise ethical issues that clash with their employer, that they know that they're not going to lose their job as a consequence of that. And I think that kind of formal framework has certainly been something that you know, academics have relied on very heavily in their role, and I think the the wider those kind of rights are available, the better. And I think one of the you know, one of the concerning trends that we've seen in you know, over the last twenty years or so is this extension of uh, less secure, more precarious employment conditions into professional roles, so into universities, into the public service, and they're organisations where you you really need people to have the confidence to be able to raise issues that are in the public interest. So, so it's those cultural elements, but also ensuring that those those underlying conditions that, that give people confidence to speak out and know that they, they have protection in doing so are equally important.
1: And Dale, if we decide, no, nah, this isn't the place for me, I can't stand how they're operating. There's a thing called exit versus voice. What is this?
0: The idea is that when people see a problem in an organisation, they've got different paths they can go down. And one is to just say, well, look, I'm out of here. (laughs) Uh, I'm not comfortable with the values or decision-making processes, so I'm going to leave and and go somewhere else. And the alternative voice is that people choose to to challenge that, to speak up and say, look, I think we should do something different. And I think what's important about that is people who voice concerns often do that because they feel committed to the project that a an organization is involved in. So you know, in the case of teaching, for example, that you're committed to education, or in the case of accounting firms, that you're committed to the obligation of accountants to serve the public good and, and so on. So you actually want to provide space for those people to speak up, even if it can be uncomfortable, because often they do so with the long-term interests of the practice you're involved in in mind. And the risk is that you don't. You get this kind of adverse selection where people who are uncomfortable with the ethics environment leave and you're left with people who are are comfortable with with practices that that actually can be quite damaging to the organisation as well as the community. And in some of the big collapses that we've seen that have been driven by ethics, like Enron in the US, like Arthur Anderson, one of the big firms that collapsed, I think we've certainly seen that, that dynamic occurring.
1: And for Max Bazerman, his message to leaders and managers is simple.
3: If this conversation is feeling unrealistic, if it feels like I'm demanding too much and it sounds like just it's a kind of an unrealistic level to expect, okay, um, how can you be better even if you can't be perfect? How can you be less complicit this year than you were last year? And then maybe think ahead to next year and think about how you're going to be even less complicit in the future.
1: Thanks to my guests, Macquarie University Senior Lecturer, Dr. Dale Tweedy, Harvard Business School Professor, Max Baseman, and CEO, Sue Barrett. And thanks to sound engineer, Tim James and to producer, Zoe Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it baby.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.